as as a kid who grew up always skinny, I always was you know, fiercely wanting to fight against bullies, but never had the ability to do so. Right. So in my career, like healthcare is, is a space where no matter what part of the sector you're in, there's, there's bullies that are, that are in the space. There's a lot of power within healthcare. And I, you know, I want to push back against things that are unjust or, you know, that I perceive are not doing what's right for regular people who don't have power, influence, or a voice in a lot of these matters. Welcome to the self-funded with Spencer podcast. Healthcare is broken, and we aim to fix it one conversation at a time. You are here listening today specifically to episode 49 with Lee Lewis of the Health Transformation Alliance, or the HTA. The Health Transformation Alliance is a a pool, they call it a co-op, of uh, 50 plus very, very large employers that have uh, banded together in order to establish best practices and use their aggregated buying power and size and scale to really implement some of the best possible solutions for self-funded employers. And so some of the things that they can do at their size and scale with their strength, we talk about in the episode, but Lee also talks about some of the things they cannot do with employers of that size because they're not really as agile as some of the smaller and mid-market employers. So we position it, even though there's some things that they can do, there are uh, some things that everybody can do. And Lee was very uh, conscientious of pointing that out. Here are things that you could do today as a fully insured or self-funded or level-funded employer to really start lowering the cost of care or the cost of claims on your plan. Lee is probably one of the most accomplished people I have ever had on the show, and I mean that sincerely. If you go look at his LinkedIn profile, his CV is a mile long. He was there for some of the origins of Health Rosetta. He helped start the Innovations Lab at Gallagher. He was at a TPA that handled small, or I could probably say even larger uh, middle market employers. He's just a data and self-funded nerd. And I mean that in a very positive way. He, I actually called him a self-insured scientist on the episode because he's just, he understands it at a level that is just phenomenal. And, you know, you just want to hear everything he has to say about it because there's so much to learn. But the cool thing is we still kept the conversation digestible. We kept it where everybody can kind of understand what we're talking about. But this is one that I think our more sophisticated brokers and consultants and carriers and vendors are really going to love because we talk about some really some true self-insured science. So episode 49 of Self-Funded with Spencer with Lee Lewis of the Health Transformation Alliance. Enjoy. Well, Lee Lewis, you're the CF- CSO, excuse me, of Health Transformation Alliance. That's a little bit of a mouthful. Yeah. HTA, I'll call you, call you HTA. But uh, I appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks so much for joining me here. Yeah, my pleasure. And she, CSO would be Chief Strategy Officer. Chief Strategy okay, Officer, cool. that's right. Well, we're going to go deep into what that means and all that stuff in a moment. The one thing I want to start off is, I, you know, we didn't know each other. This is our first time to meet each yes, other. And I do my, do my investigation on LinkedIn. Who is this guy? What does he do? What's his background? And I will admit, and I mean this sincerely, you have one of the most you know broad resumes i'd say in this industry impressive background some of the things you've done you know these bullet points i'm hitting like oh my god he was part of that and he was part of that and he was part of that so where did this all come from man how did you get to be such a if you don't mind me saying kind of a health insurance geek like where did this come from man yeah yeah no i fell in love with it so um i don't know it a few things right one is i hate like as as a kid who grew up always skinny, I always was, you know, fiercely wanting to fight against bullies, but never had the ability to do so. Right. Fair so enough. in yeah. my career, like 
healthcare is is a space where no matter what part of the sector you're in, there's there's bullies that are that are in the space. There's a lot of power right. within healthcare. Fair enough. And I, you know, I want to push back against things that are unjust or you know that I perceive are not doing what's right for regular people yeah. who don't have power, influence, or a voice in a lot of these matters. And then, um, and then I I love being able to try and make a difference, right? You know, sort of that that millennial defect where you're always wanting to try and make a positive change in the world that it was like, Oh, this is something I can really sink my teeth into. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's why, that's why it has so much allure for me. Well, and I think I would think I would agree. And I've actually been pleasantly surprised over the, I've been in this space 15 ish years now, uh, in general, but prior to entering in the insurance industry, which I want to talk about your origin stories as well. You know, I thought, Oh, insurance, big, bad, you know, uh, they're trying to screw people out of denying, you know, you had this perception on the outside <laughs> right. that you do some of the things you hear media, stuff like that, where it's just shining the light on the worst possible elements of our business. Then you get into it and you realize, well, one, there's some really great people. Most of the agents and brokers I talk to have a similar mission as you do. Like they generally want to help right. and fix. And there's a con a social consciousness and, you know, let's go fix healthcare. It's just done through the mechanism of healthcare. Um, right. So that's why I find it fascinating. I, it's not surprising that that's a little bit of your motivation as well. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that first step, right? So, I, and I, I really mean it, your, your resume, I want to talk about the that's Health Rosetta, the Innovations Lab at Gallagher, HTA, all that stuff. But you had a pretty, um, I would say, we were just discussing this, not unusual, but an interesting first stop in healthcare, which is Goosehead Insurance and kind of the personal line space. So tell me yeah. how we got there. So I, uh, I was in college and uh, as, I was, as I was wrapping things up, I was supposed to become a professor. So I had published my honors thesis. I'd won a case competition. and, and uh, What subject, subject at that? It was in corporate social responsibility. Okay. So still kind of the yeah. human side of trying to do right in business. And um, uh, my paper got accepted for presentation at a conference. And I got to go and sort of share these things about it. And, and I was meeting all these heads of different places. And... After, after looking at all the other research that was in place, I started thinking, man, I don't, I don't see the business impact of some of these ideas. I don't know that this is tactical, like the, mm -hmm. that it could be mm -hmm. used by a regular business. And then I realized that a lot of research is not even with the intention of being used. And, and like my head sort of started to melt when I started realizing like, oh my gosh, um, if I went down this road, maybe I'd be doing research that like wouldn't be useful. Just be for theoretical. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get along with that. So as I was having this existential crisis about my, my desired, uh, career path, uh, my mentor said, Hey, you should check out like consulting firms. And I, I, I interviewed at one, they turned me down, but then I got a call from the partner who, who interviewed me and said, Hey, we're, we're starting a brand new company. Do you want to come be the first employee? I'm like, that sounds amazing. Cause mm -hmm. this, this guy was, so phenomenal. you were literally the first employee at, at Goosehead. Wow. Yeah. I was the very first employee at Goosehead. And, uh, so I came, uh, to work there and, and, uh, just was reporting to the CEO, Mark Jones. He was amazing. He taught me everything that I know about business. And, uh, we skyrocketed like, like wild. Um, and after, but I got impatient after, I don't know, seven, eight years, I was like, uh, you know, I think I want to move back closer to family. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really a way for me to do that at the time. And so, uh, so I left and then a few years later they went public for, you know, now they're worth many billions. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they're 
Well, it's funny you consider, like you mentioned, inpatient, then you said seven or eight years. For most millennials, seven to eight years with one company is patient, (laughs) right? I mean, inpatient might be 18 months, right? Um, But but the fact, like, that's always disappointing, right? You feel like, oh, just one or two more years if I stuck it out, right? But clearly life had another plan for you, another design for you. So when you left, what was the next step for you? Was that when we got tied into Health Rosetta? Or or no, you said you built a consulting firm. No, I did a, um, no, I moved back. I helped some friends make a small agency uh, and uh, exited my my investment there after about a year. Uh, once it got up and running, and it's still doing great today. And then uh, and then I a friend of a friend sort of referred me into a TPA mm. that was looking to do something different, bring in somebody who knew sales that was outside the norm. And so uh, I applied. Uh, they said no, but I went, I clawed my way back in and said, no, like, you're going to make me this offer. I want to, I want to do this. And they, they brought me in and, um, and that's how I learned healthcare inside a TPA that helped large employers, uh, that helped large employers self-fund and do really creative things. Well, we were just chatting. I, I know we wouldn't have. I'll probably cut the podcast with that uh, stuff we were just chatting about right before off, but, um, you mentioned that in this big TPA that was working with larger employers that your perception of what you were doing is, is doesn't everybody else do that? So doesn't everybody have yeah. access to data was one of those things you said. So what was that epiphany for you <laughs> realizing not everybody gets claims data in, in the world? Learning, learning healthcare for the very first time inside an independent TPA is like learning candy making with only the context of being inside Wonka's chocolate factory. Fair enough. That's <laughs> and a great so analogy. once I was released into the wild, when I, when I sort of became a consultant at Gallagher, I was like, Oh, you know, Oompa Loompas are normal, right? Hasn't yeah. everyone seen them? And you know, this is the thing. <laughs> and it was like, no. So I thought that, I thought that every self-funded employer got all their data and had full rights and kind mm. of ownership and the ability to use it. I thought that was just how things were totally not. Um, I thought that every employer in the country that was self-funded capped their dialysis payments during the Medicare coordination period. That was just a normal thing. Every employer I knew did it. Totally niche strategy that virtually no regular self-funded employers do. Um, I thought that I thought it was very normal to have a two-tier in-network benefit. It's not normal. I thought it was also. I thought it was, um, you know, to have full kind of control and lots of plug-in capabilities and to kind of get direct reporting on your subrogation. There were so many different things that I just thought were normal and and it was wild. So then when I became a consultant, um, I had the chance to join Gallagher uh, and it was just an awesome opportunity. I said, hey, I just want to work with large employers. And they said, sure. And, um, and I just want to do a focus on innovation. I want to start a lab up and, and start and create a safe space to bring in as many new innovations as possible mm. and, to, uh, and to help them be better so that they can help more people. Mm. And if, if we help vendors have better products, they will go out and and the impact will go far beyond our own walls or our own clients. Sure, we'll be able to help our own clients yep. and that'll be great. But then if they also help other employers as well, then we, we get to help potentially millions of other people and hopefully increase the the caliber of vendors that we get generally. Like yeah. That's a that seems like a pretty worthwhile thing to do. And then not for nothing, the the value to our own clients and to my employer Gallagher was now we also have access to the best stuff mm-hmm. 
because we help to build it. Yeah, you have an association with helping build these really good solutions as well. You're almost, it's funny, I'm listening to you. You're almost like a self-insured scientist. I can picture you in this innovations lab with a white coat coming up with a new idea <laughs> for, like, for savings, you know? It was, it, it was a whiteboard. Whiteboard, yes, okay. I love that, me a whiteboard. That right? was yeah. it. We just we whiteboarded all the time. So that's how long we were did. you doing that? So when you came with them with this idea and they said, great, let's do it, how long did you have uh, it within that uh, lab? I was, I was there about three years. Three years, okay. Yeah. And so we uh, we sort of worked in innovations kind of in, and really it was a lot of sort of working with and meeting and helping advise vendors that we would then bring to our large employers. And then we, we focused on jumbos and we got to work with some I don't know. We had four Fortune 100 companies that no we were advising. Okay. Is there anything out of that period. lab that you were particularly uh, proud of as a solution? We were the very first consulting team in the United States to do a uh, to do a specialty drug carve out back in 2017. Okay. Um, first at that time. I mean, even now it's a pretty it's pretty avant garde strategy, but back then it had never been done before. So. Um, and if there is somebody who has done it uh, <laughs> earlier than that, and I just have yeah, I'm going to have seen, one person listening. No, no, I did it, it in 2016. Yeah, yeah, email me and I'll, and I'll correct. I'm, <laughs> I'm used to not taking first place and things. That's just fine. But like, <laughs> I think we were the first ones to do a carve out. We were, um, oh, I think we were the, we were maybe the first to tackle orphan drugs as a whole separate strategy, separate mm -hmm. category to manage every single one of them on an exception basis. That, I think that was pretty new, and that's still not a common strategy. We did, um, oh, what else? We, we got, uh, we got fertility therapies to be done on a case-by-case -case basis where it was just sort of not on a PMPM PM generally, okay. you know, basis. We started coordinating between large employers to, uh, to be able to find best practices around contracts yeah. with carriers. We created an audit practice that tested four different claims audit capabilities okay. to see what might actually work. And we were able to find some strategies that were able to work, and, and we overhauled and got a thousand percent increase in the results of an audit. Well, I was going to say the ability airline. to be within, uh, uh, like a you said, a safe space like that, where you can try and fail and come up with a better yeah. version or test things out, but also have the leverage and a power of somebody substantial like Gallagher helps you push some of the better ones through, right? Because you actually have some leverage with size and scale. Yeah, and the we we sort of coined a. a we coined a phrase at the time that said, hey, if you want to be a wildly successful consultant, you must talk about new and and uh, and exciting innovations. Uh, if you don't, you're going to get fired. Yep. But you need to stop just short of actually doing them because <laughs> if you do them, you're also going to, you're also you're gonna gonna get, get fired. fired. Right? <laughs> so the, the, the damned sweet if you do, damned if you don't, right? Just talk about them because everybody loves to talk about innovative stuff. Yeah. But doing it is terrifying. That's fair. That's fair, right? And everybody wants to label themselves as a disruptor, but disruption <laughs> as a, you know, just a coin without any sort of caveat to that means I'm just breaking things and not oh worrying about the aftermath, right? And you know how it's like you hear about couples who were like, had a perfect marriage and they went through some horrible tragedy mm -hmm. and they came out on the other side and it's just 
seeing each other reminded them of uh-huh. the tragedy and yeah. so they drifted apart and it's, and it's you know that in itself is a tragedy the marriage fell apart because they went through something so awful it just couldn't survive that's a little bit of what it was like so i had one client the client for whom we did the the specialty drug carve out they were they were about a 30 million dollar a year client and we saved them 2.2 million dollars a year okay. with that strategy yeah. i mean it was huge deal and um, almost 10% of their uh, of their total annual spend we were able to save through that. And then um, they won an innovation award from the Validation Institute for the work okay. that they did. Wow. And they you know, were up there and getting trophies and the photos and everything like that in the press release. And um, <laughs> But it was so hard to do that for the very first time ever with so many meetings and so many fights mm-hmm. with PBMs and carriers that afterwards we were all so exhausted. They were like, we... Just, we <laughs> We're, we can't keep we can't keep going with this. Okay, that, and so that's right. yeah, they just they, they look the at you. Client. Yeah, they look at you like all they see is just the pain of all those meetings and things like it's that. The pain and stress. Hey, of that's it. part of being innovative, right? Oh, is you got to break a few eggs, right, uh, to oh, make an omelet. Well, um, and I want to take one more stop before we spend the rest of the time on Health Transportation Alliance because that is obviously the motivation here. And uh, somebody that's listening is like, like we get it. Lee is very well regarded and he's smart and he's associated with a lot of cool things. But I do want to touch on Health Rosetta for a second. Yeah. So Health Rosetta, I know you were kind of early, like you said, an early charter member. Is that the term you used? That's so right. what 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 was it like in the early stages of Health Rosetta? Yeah. So Dave Chase is a visionary, and he and Sean Shanson uh, started saying, "Hey, we need to." like half more than half the market or whatever, all the spend is controlled by small employers and every small employer, like they're not setting these programs up. It's, it's the brokers. And so when you get a broker, a, uh, an insurance broker, you're getting someone who is both a sort of running, essentially running the benefits for many smaller organizations mm-hmm. and B they're fairly sophisticated and want, you know, in many cases, really want to do something to make the make the industry better. Yeah, absolutely. And in them, they found a, a really tremendous ally. And so it was like, okay, we know that there are great solutions in the marketplace. They need to be distributed. And so let's make the Health Rosetta where we can crowdsource and disseminate the best possible strategies to brokers everywhere so that they can help their their many clients to take on the strategies that can help improve American healthcare as a whole. Brilliant move. Um, they've had tremendous success with it. At that time, I had just become, I was a new consultant at Gallagher and I had started to find some success working with larger employers and doing some different strategies. And they approached me and said, Hey, let's, um, you know, do you want to, do you want to, get involved with this and I'm like absolutely this is something that we all need and that and it's sort of blossomed from there so I was one of the first 20 consultants or brokers to be uh to be able to help support that movement And and I'm still active today dues paying you know member and contributor where i can even though i'm not technically a, a broker a consultant today cool well they're not paying me but i'm a big fan of what they yeah. do and i obviously know a lot of the consultants in that space some of them are clients of ours at my company um and really just the mission that they're on i appreciate and i, I do genuinely believe you can do good and also be successful and, and make money and have a good living simultaneously which is really what i think they're ultimately trying to do so no more beating around the bush. Health yeah. Transportation Alliance. Here we are. What is that? And let's spend the rest of the time, if you don't mind, on sure, that sure. subject. This podcast so. is brought to you by True Captive Insurance, a premier medical stop-loss captive for employer groups ranging from 25 to 1,000 employees.
True Captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated. That's why they take a white glove approach, making it easy for employer groups to transition into a program built specifically for them. Check them out at truecaptive.com. This podcast is sponsored by PlanSight. PlanSight is a technology for employee benefits brokers to more efficiently manage their RFP process for any group size, all funding types, and over 20 benefit lines and point solutions. PlanSight is the only end-to-end RFP technology on the market today. Let's modernize your RFP process together. Check us out at PlanSight.com. So the HTA is the only organization of its kind that is a co-op, so it's a C-corp, but it does not have a profit intent. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is fully owned by all of the employers that make it up. That's about 65 employers today make up the owners of the HTA. They each own an equal stake within the company, so an equal equity portion of the HTA. And, And together, you know, they... They created the organization, and then the organization has its own staff. We have about, I don't know, we've got 20, 25 people who okay. work there. Uh, we're virtual, so we're all over the country. And our entire mission is to create uh, superior outcomes in, in health, compelling savings for our, our members, and and even beyond them. So the shorthand is we want to we save lives, and we want to save dollars and uh and make that possible for our our members so so tell me talk to me about some of the uh prerequisites and or who is is this this health transformation i think i said transportation a minute ago health transformation alliance who is who is appropriate for this particular arrangement yeah absolutely so our our uh for a company to just join or or to become an owner within the hta uh they need to be above five thousand total lives on their health plan okay so if you have you know if you're around 2500 to 3500 employees you probably have enough total lives uh to be able to meet that requisite and an equity stake costs five hundred thousand dollars to buy in, and you you can pay that over a couple of years or whatever. That's fine, and you can pay it through your your health budget. It's an ERISA approved expense. Okay, excellent. Um, and once you have done that, you now own a stake of the HTA, and you get access to um, our teams, our resources, the opportunities to collaborate with other members. Uh, the contracts, we get favored nations pricing and great deals with contracts. Most of our employers will save, I don't know, even, I mean, it's all different sizes, but they'll usually save two to 5% or more on their healthcare spend just by buying one or two of our, of kind of the major solutions that are available. Okay. So, you know, these are big employers, right? And I think you, you mentioned something to me prior where there's there's strength in being a large employer, but there's maybe a lack of agility. So talk to me yeah. about the balance of those two things with a jumbo employer. Why is it harder for an enormous organization to do something that's really, really cutting edge, perhaps, and innovative? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. There are There's two types of innovation. There's innovation that requires a huge amount of strength and resources, and there's an, there's an there are innovations which require a huge amount of agility and speed. And, you know, the classic two entrepreneurs in a garage, that's an agility play. They have no power in the world, uh, purchasing or otherwise, but they have incredible speed and agility at one extreme. The other extreme is a Fortune 50 employer with, you know, billions and billions of dollars in profits every month who is 
you know, has wields incredible market strength, but they don't have any agility. So those are kind of the two extremes and every employer falls somewhere between those. And, uh, the, uh, some health innovations are really only well accessible for high agility companies. So smaller companies, other innovations are impossible almost for very small companies and, uh, and are the purview of the large ones. Well, so what is an example of uh, something you think that a smaller company can do, a common maybe innovation that a smaller company can deploy that a large company could not, or a very large company could Yeah, not. the most common innovation that is much easier for small employers to do than, than for large, um, reference-based pricing. Okay. Very challenging for a large employer to do. Um, if you're a smaller employer, you can wrap your head around it. It's easy to communicate. So any program that requires a lot of communication, yeah. Uh, there's great stuff coming out of the Validation Institute and uh, Al Lewis talking about how to how to avoid uh, and Marshall Allen talks about this as well. Sort of the um, how to how to avoid getting overcharges and balance bills in emergency room by sort of writing in a uh, an informed kind of consent uh, of paying up to two x medicare for charges and there's other types of strategies like that that are easy for a smaller group but not so much for a big one okay yeah and i think even i think you mentioned example direct primary care which is one that actually you know when you explain it to me it made sense but on the surface i'm thinking well that's a fairly simple model right decapitated model where you're paying a monthly fee to access a doctor you know why couldn't that be scalable but you said sometimes there's employers that might have people in hundreds of cities across the country where those vendors aren't Set up for correct. That's exactly right. So if I'm if I have a hundred thousand employees in every zip code, every you know major MSA, um, I want to make direct primary care available to all of them. But to do so would require me to to go out and contract mm-hmm. with potentially dozens or hundreds of primary care direct primary care doctors. Right now, I could try to democratize that a little bit by by encouraging my people to go find DPC and saying, "Hey, I'll pay for it if you go and find one." But it's but that but that then would require a lot of communication and nuance, which would be really hard to do across a hundred thousand people. And so, um, DPC is a wonderful strategy, but up until now, it's been kind of the purview of of small employers. Well, fair enough. And I do want to flip the script and not focus so much on yeah. what uh, a large employer, a jumbo employer, can't do. Give me some examples of things that you're able to execute with an HTA that would be much more difficult for a small employer to do. Oh, there's some there's got to be a bunch of awesome but, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that's what I want to hear about. I want to hear about the awesome stuff. So, first thing we're working on is we are exploring. You know, our employers, by and large, get all their data from the carriers and are able to use it. That's great. But then we said, okay, well, how much further can this go? Like, Mm. what other types of data exist around our health plan within the carriers? It's not just medical claims. They have also a copy of all the eligibility. What about also all the prior authorization? When uh, when someone requests uh, authorization for a surgery or imaging or for a new specialty drug or cancer therapy, there's there's a whole workflow that exists inside yeah. the carrier architecture that has incredibly rich data. That wait a minute, why don't we why don't we get that? We can think of a lot of great uses for that. Another one that we're so excited about is if I think I might have cancer, right? Uh, I'm going to call into the cancer the oncologist. And say, hey, I need to come in and visit with you. I think, I, you know, I got some weird readings. I might have cancer or something like that. And they say, okay, great. What's the first thing they do? 
okay, well, what's your, what's your insurance ID? Let's see if we take your insurance. We need to figure that out real quick first, right? So I give that to them over the phone. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to key that into a portal and it's going to check and find out that I, um, that I am active, that I have a thousand dollar deductible and maybe I've met half of that and they're going to have this data and they're going to give that to me over the phone and say, okay, yeah, we do take your insurance. No problem. Let me get you in for an appointment. Well, that little snap check of my eligibility and my, my plan status, benefit status, that exists out in the sphere. And if we could get that, we could predict that oncology visit six months before we see the claim. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that may not matter if I'm going in for, you know, a, a, a physical, but it might matter a ton if I'm, if I'm going into a system or a provider who has lost their license in three other states. Okay. Yeah. If I knew that yeah. and I could see, hey, I've got a member who's setting up an appointment with that physician. I want to. I want to take some action there. I want to provide some information. I think that's stuff that the that the consumer ought to know. Absolutely. That today they don't, and that's power. So we are now creating an atlas of every type of data that exists out in the sphere, and working with our carriers to standardize that, put it into a package bundle, and be able to get that sent to every carrier or every employer every day. Every day. Into okay. a server they control. Interesting. And so somebody with on, within the HR team or the benefits team internally, that employer is just managing that, like log in every morning and see what do I have to work on today? <laughs> no, no, no. No. <laughs> no. And many of them will say, Lee, I don't want that data. If That's it's, too much. If it's yeah. A, uh, yeah, no, uncle, I'd like... There's some things I don't need, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want to know how my car engine works and I don't want to see all that data, yeah. right? There's, there's certain things that, that are best, best left a mystery. No, but the, the way we're handling that is we're saying, look, um, you, you don't have to know everything about every element of your data, mm. but you do need to have control over it. Fair enough, yeah. But you also, that data is radioactive, right? I mean, if, if that spills over... It'd be, it'd be bad. It'd be a, a career Chernobyl. Like you don't want to lose access to that. Mm-hmm. You, you want that data to be out and about. And so the, the way that we've approached that is said, okay, let's find the most secure cloud-based server on the planet. Okay. So NSA, NASA, FBI level security. Okay. Then let's get our data into that every day. And let's create walls and permissions that hermetically seal it off from anybody who might be able to misuse it. Okay. And then when we need to use that data, let's keep it fully encrypted, both when it's sitting still and in motion. Amazing. We can use secure FTPs in order to transport it in a, in a secure channel. And we keep it permanently encrypted. Oh, and we only share what we need to. Today, if, I need a, if I'm putting in a new wellness vendor and they need some data, I have to go and set up a feed with my carrier. Well, it's a hassle to even get it set up. But once I do, they kind of like, they're not going to go through and, you know, chicken peck out the exact fields that that vendor needs. That'd be too much of a hassle. So what do they do? They just sort of send everything. Yep. Yep. And it creates this culture of both a, it's nearly impossible to get the data, but then when we do, we give too much. (laughs) And now you're massively oversharing with these vendors because it's too much of a hassle to, to get it precise. Well, we correct for that as well, where we're only going to share the minimum necessary. We're going to encrypt everything that we can. And by doing that, we're both more secure, even though we have 10 times as much utility and usage. Yeah. Well, I just say you get that certain amount of data fatigue, right? Where your job at HTA is to sort of triage what is appropriate, like you said, and then 
Do you normalize it to a degree that makes it easier for the user to digest or make sense of what you're giving them, I presume, as well? 100%. In order for any of it to work well, you have to be able to have, we have to be able to create standard algorithms that are based in source truth, Mm -hmm. right, of what actually occurred. But if I go to Dr. A and receive a standard service, say a colonoscopy, okay, if... um, if I have Cigna, if it gets coded a certain way, but if I have Etna and it gets coded a different way, then um, then there's not comparability. If if we then create an algorithm that is based on, hey, how many colonoscopies occurred for men between the ages of 40 and 55, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the answer to that question might be different um, through uh, even... The answer to that question might be different depending on who you ask, which carrier, if the way that they interpret and produce the data creates anomalies in the way that it gets filed and categorized. And okay. so a big part of it is we cannot compare data across carriers. That's sort of outside the use case of anyone to be able to do it. But what we must be able to do is produce an algorithm that that gets uh, that, that delivers truth, and that algorithm needs to work on any type of data that you have. Okay. One is we get into, you know, a lot of this, of course, is applicable to these this larger employer, right? We're talking about the HTA, you called it a co-op, correct, is the right correct. terminology. Somebody that's listening to this is a 50 life employer, a 100 life employer, or a broker that mostly dabbles in that space. Yeah. Like all that's great, but what can I take from this? How could I apply some of those best practices to my level or size of employer? Yeah, so there are a few strategies that a small employer can take advantage of that enable them to circumvent some of the challenges that would be overcome by having a billion-dollar health plan, Um, sort of force power challenges versus agility challenges. Mm -hmm. One of them is, okay, so if I have a 50-life group, um, I can self-fund. Rather than going, I might stair-step into a level funding type arrangement first, right, in order to start getting in there and, and getting some data. From there, though, I would want to transition to a TPA. Why? Because a TPA will allow me to get all my data as if I were, you know, as if I were uh, Marriott Hotels or, or you know, United Airlines. I'm going to get the same data access. Mm-hmm. If I have a smaller TPA, I'll get the same data access as if I were a 100,000 life company. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly is I can do direct contracting that would be just as efficacious potentially as if I were a major employer. Because if I've got my 50 lives in a, in a certain area and I can communicate to those 50 lives in a really productive way that a huge employer will never be able to do at that level yeah. of sophistication. Yeah. And so I can rally my troops in an all-hands meeting and say, hey, guys, gals, team, here's the deal. We've got to control our health care so that we can give all of you awesome care. Mm-hmm. In order for us to do that, we're going to have to do a few things. One is we'd like to use um, – like to narrow down. There's five hospitals in town. If we can decide on one hospital that we all feel good about, we can get a direct contract with them, and we don't have to um, – and it'll, it'll enable us to save money to be able to pay them directly on a common kind of source fee. We'll have a TPA that's able to sort of arrange it and help us to set up our, our uh, su- you know, our supply chain or whatever. And um, 
and this is a huge opportunity for us to be able to save some money and, and have a great experience. And by doing so, I can reduce the co-pays and I can reduce the deductibles that, that every person has. Yeah, I love that. And those are kind of some macro components, right? You're talking about direct contracting, go to an independent TPA. Something that you mentioned to me before the podcast was about uh, folks that have heart conditions or there's a certain heart condition where there's prevalence. And you said there's a really good solution around that, a, a common solution that's been in place for 20 years. And there's some really clear, quantifiable ROI for this. So can you explain, I know I've been vague to this point, so can you explain what that was? No, absolutely. So if we want to look at it holistically, there's like five big categories that you ought to have a good a good plan in place, right? You should have a a plan and a path around your orthopedic spend, around your cardiometabolic, so heart attacks and strokes. You should have a plan in place on maternity and fertility. You should know what you're doing on cancer, and you should have a strategy around behavioral health. Those five make up 46 to 51% of all dollars. Okay, great. So the opportunities in each of those are a little differently. Um, But one, and, and getting a good care path in each of those way easier if you have 50 employees okay. right than if I have a hundred thousand and so the example that you that you just mentioned is one that I, I love um, there's a doctor named uh, Bill Besterman who's published a lot on this this is a shout out for for him you should go get on his Substack. Uh, but he uh, he cycles up a lot of the best research around heart attack and stroke that shows that 92 percent of heart attack and stroke survivors in the US today are not on the right meds to prevent the next heart attack or stroke, okay. which you have a one in five chance of occurring every year. If and you've already previously had a heart attack. If you already yeah, have okay. one. Yeah. If, you already, if you're a heart attack or stroke survivor, you've got a one in five chance of it hitting again okay. every, every year. Every single year. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. I know it's terrifying, okay. right? And so, but if you get on the right meds, it might be one in 14 years, one in 16 years okay. instead of one in five. Okay. And so obviously we'd all want to get on those meds. They're not expensive. It's They're all generic drugs that you can get at any Walgreens or CVS or Walmart. And, um, but people aren't on the right ones. And so we are getting data, analyzing it so that we can find the right people and then being able to get outreach to those, to those folks. Do you know specifically what that cocktail is? You mentioned there's five drugs. Yeah. Uh, by you name, do you, know, or off you top can of Google it. You Google Bill Besterman and, and uh, find his research, but it's like aspirin, metformin, an ACE inhibitor, lisinopril, um, coupled, I think one there's maybe yeah. one other drug yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, it's like, there's not, it's not a really complex thing, but you, you got to get the right amounts uh, in each and make sure you're taking a brand that doesn't have a side effect that damages another important organ. Well, is there, what is the, is there any difficulty in applying that best practice then? I mean, is, what's the challenge, right? If it's been around for 20 years and it's a pretty easy, straightforward cocktail, why isn't, uh, why aren't more of the population on that? It's hard because it involves multiple areas of medicine. Okay. So you've got, you know, in a good way to think about it is there's a lot of research that suggests that cardiometabolic diseases, so diabetes, heart disease, which, mm-hmm. you know, includes your strokes as well, and, uh, you know, vascular disease, and then also kidney disease, that really today we think of those as three totally different diseases with three different organs and three different medical specialties. Mm -hmm. So my endocrinologist cares for my pancreas, my cardiologist heart, and my nephrologist, my kidney. And they each just kind of look out for that organ. But what, you know, what the theory suggests is that no, it's sort of like if if a business were dumping chemicals in a river and downstream it kills the fishes, the frogs, and the forest. 
you don't have a fish problem and a frog problem and a forest problem. You have a poison in the river problem. Yeah. And we approach it with fishes and frogs is that, no, I've got to fix this, this pancreas. But really, it's that I've got a lot of, you know, bad actor uh, elements from my food, from my diet, from my environment that are circulating in my mm -hmm. blood and that are damaging my arteries, that are beating up my heart, that are trashing my pancreas. And I've got two kidneys, so they go last, but I've got two kidneys and they're beating on both of those too. Okay. And the pancreas sort of goes out first, which is why most of us have uh, diabetes first. Okay. Um, and then the heart comes near after, which hits with your heart. So you've got the most prevalent disease condition, the most lethal one that, that kills the most people, and then, and then potentially the most acute one with kidney disease. That once you once you get end stage renal disease, your life expectancy is like three to five years. So it's the problem good. with the pancreas is almost like your check engine light that thinks something's going wrong, like a warning sign. It's kind you, of the first one yeah. to hit. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say, right? Because then we're, we're talking about the interoperability between these different disease states or, you know, one might preclude that another is going to follow. But I always like to go back well further upstream. You mentioned the poison in the river. Is that ultimately the poison that we put in our body, right? I mean, not to get too philosophical, but the food we yeah. eat, the way that we treat our bodies, whether we, we drink too much, whether we smoke, things like that, that's really the, the connecting point that's maybe causing the downstream damage, right? It's exactly right. So it is, um, we know that our diets have gotten worse. We know that our life expectancy has downticked I in know, the United that's States. That's crazy to me. Which is, with yeah. all the amazing technology that we have, yeah. our life expectancy just took a downtick. Um, I think half of Americans are pre-diabetic right now. I mean, mm. it's it's wild. Our healthiest state today, I think, is Colorado. Is with the lowest okay. lowest amount of obesity? Shout out to Colorado if that fact is Good true. Job, I, think, Colorado. I think that's yeah. I think that's accurate. Uh, as I understand it, it is you know it's it's fatter, it's more obese mm -hmm. than the than the fattest state like 50 years ago. Yep it's crazy. Well, there's a pretty clear trajectory, right? And I don't want to get us too off topic and I certainly don't want to be dogmatic in nature, but I am seeing research around the carnivore style diet, which is folks that are going to the extreme of just eating meat, right? And so yeah. anecdotal in nature, but there's a couple doctors I follow, uh, Dr. Saladino, Dr. Sean Baker. They share literally messages they get every day from people. Again, anecdotal in nature, but hey, I was able to get off my diabetes medication. Hey, my psoriasis or my eczema went away. There's something to it, right? I hope we do some sort of yeah. meta-analysis on it to see that. But that's when I start thinking about all of these solutions are great, but they're also post-acute. They're post-symptom, right? I'm treating something after the fact. How can we message better as an industry to the people to prevent it from happening in the first place or at least slow it down? That part is hard because it is rooted in the way we eat is, is rooted in habit, lifestyle, culture, and addiction. Mm -hmm. And changing all of those factors to get someone onto a a new mode of living um i don't know i mean we we ran a pretty good social experiment with that yeah. over the last 20 years called the biggest loser where we took people yeah. who were who were at a, a a pretty significant level of pathology and the wellness program we put them on someone is going to control everything you put in your body 24 7 yeah. you're gonna have the best physical fitness experts in the world helping you to lose weight. Oh, we're going to peer pressure you with the t televising it to millions of people yeah. every day. We're going to shame you with catastrophic disappointment if you don't <laughs> succeed. 
And we're going to put that all into a cocktail of, you know, TNT superfused like yeah. wellness program, um, uh, kind of notoriety all in one place. And we ran it for like 10 years. And then they did a study where they went and found all, all these individuals and something like well over 90% are all the way back to where they were. Oh, of course they're, yeah. But it's worse than that. Before they had gone on the show, their body was burning, call it 2,500 calories a day. Okay. Okay, so it was burning at a pretty good chug rate. After the show, their bodies had permanently reduced, it appears to be permanent, at least the data suggests that even six years afterwards, their their bodies are burning like 1,800 calories a day, okay. but they're back to the same size. Yeah. And many of them still have excess hunger hormones. Yeah, they destroyed their metabolism probably during that time because it was so extreme, I presume. Right. Or the or the body sort of holds that in as a memory because yeah. our, our bodies, after 100,000 generations of dying of starvation, our bodies see fat as a really good bank account. That's your 401k, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And then when you take it away from me... Is that why my 401k over time is actually growing? In my- <laughs> so it grows, right? <laughs> yeah. And we feel good about yeah. it. So fat's sort of like your, your body's 401k, and it wants to have... It wants that that body mass back because mm-hmm. that means we're not going to die when we have a bad hunt or yeah. we... You know, or there's a potato famine, right? Um, and so... The after we lost all that weight, apparently your body's reaction to that is, oh, we've got to, we got to go on a budget. I drain my bank account. Yeah, right? yeah I drain yeah. my bank account. Yeah. We've got to get the bank account back, yeah. and so we're going on a spending freeze, austerity, oh, forever. <laughs> I, I appreciate the layers of analogy we just threw on that, and thanks for going down that path with me because it's like sometimes we get so stuck in this industry of looking for the next new shiny object that'll be the silver bullet that. Uh, I think somebody heard called a magic or the purple glitter pill or whatever it is. It's like, yeah. I've got a new solution and this is going to fix healthcare. Realistically, the, it's such a macro problem. It's a trillion dollar question. It's not a billion dollar question is behaviorally as a, as a culture science, all those things need to inter, intervene in advance of just somebody coming up with a better way to pay claims or a better way to adjudicate, whatever. So thanks for going down that path with me. A couple more minutes, we'll wrap it up. And I really appreciate your time, Lee, but I do have to ask, Interest in self-funded. Was it accidental with Ameribin, or did you have somebody piqued your interest in, in learning what this mechanism is for funding? How did you even discover self-funding in the first place? Oh, yeah, totally accidental. Okay. And I didn't know the difference between self-funding and fully insured. Okay. I just sort of, okay, I thought that self-funding is what people did. And you just literally, so was there an immediate latching to it? Like where you said this, I, mean, I know you mentioned when oh, you were awesome. in Ameribin, you're like, how... Uh, how would I, how would anybody ever do it any other way than this? But as soon as you saw it, was there this, this aha moment for you? Yeah. I came from car and home insurance <laughs> and then I came over to healthcare and I'm like, what? Yeah. Employers are self fun Like they're their own insurance company. How does not any, everyone Everybody know this, that, yeah. right? Um, because I had no idea that was a thing. And I had just seen huge corporations, you know, insure their buildings and stuff like that, still using fully insured policies. And then some of those same companies that were, you know, that were insuring their fleets with huge insurance policies, they were self-funding all their health care. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. So you don't buy health insurance 
policies, the employer is their own insurance company. That was a radical notion to me, and I thought it was really cool. Yeah, well, that's the same way. It, it, it hooked me immediately, right? And that's why I have a po- podcast revolving around it. But so best practices, best advice, right? You've been in this industry a while, so have I. You know, clearly you've, you've succeeded in what you endeavor to do, and I'm sure you'll continue to do so. Somebody early on kicking the tires of, of insurance or self-funding, like a little couple pieces of advice of, of how to get started or resources, things like that. <sighs> A couple of things. One is in order to share, well, first you need a great message. So you've got to learn everything you can. That ended up being the sort of the accidental superpower of my career is I just, I just asked questions mm, relentlessly. Love that. Yeah. Why? How does it work? What happens? I was at a little TPA um, and not a little TPA, but in the scale of things, TPAs are all little. And I was like, well, how come we pay the claims this way? How does it work where they come mm-hmm. in and pricing and two-tier in-network benefit and what are the different ways that it goes? And you just, you never stop asking questions. You learn a ton that even more than you realize when you're doing that. And that becomes a reservoir of capability that will that will absolutely differentiate you later because there's not enough curious people out there. So that's... I, so I would, if I could touch on that for a second, because I 100% agree with you and I saw this actually happen. Um, and I won't say who or where, but I, I was working with a young analyst who was managing some reports and, and I saw him one day. It was, uh, you know, taking all this claims data and trying to put it in sort of these uh, bucket ranges of dollars to see the number of people that were costing within these ranges. And I saw him on a piece of paper He'd taken the, the data set and then he was going, all right, well, there's like three here. So he's writing it down. I'm like, what, what, well, hold on a second. Why are you, you, we're doing this in Excel, your output's in Excel, but you're handwriting on a note to try to convert these categories. And so I had him take a step back and go, hey, do you think we could solve for this in Excel? He hadn't thought to question the why or what am I doing with this data? He was just trying to complete a task. And this was a really junior kid. He's a very smart kid. But I saw that, you know, the opposite of what you're kind of describing is I would agree with you 100%. Ask the question, well, wait, what am I doing with this data? What, what's the purpose of it? How can I better, more efficiently normalize this data? Just as an example, that, that curiosity, I would agree that there's not enough people that are just asking the why. Absolutely. Once you've done that enough, you've got this reservoir of knowledge or talent or capability, and now now you've got a good message. You have something you can teach. You have some value that you can add to employers. Mm-hmm. But now, now you need to be able to share that message as widely as possible. And that becomes sort of the second major thing, which is uh, it was shared with me by uh, shared to me by one of my mentors, Kathy Kather, who used to be head of national accounts at at UHC and she was a national practice leader for Towers Watson and had also worked in a hospital. She said, uh, the number one thing to, to growing and getting lots of opportunities is get filed under helpful. So <laughs> when you, when you meet someone, you, you, you know, you get a first impression Yeah. and the idea is that people file you somewhere in their brains under a heading of, you know, annoying or, you know, Annoying or weird or attractive or eager, charismatic or too pushy or or egomaniacal or timid. You want to get filed under helpful. Helpful. There's a helpful file there. And the uh, I took that one step further when I was at Gallagher. I said we're going to run our practice like someone at a stoplight who jumps out and squeegees the windows and hopes that you'll pay them a dollar or something (laughs) for uh, squeegeeing the window while you're there at the stoplight. 
and um, you know you might you might clean five cars and only one of them gives you a dollar, but that's okay. You're you're you just get out there and start adding value. And so we had a rule. We said we're not going to make anybody sign. We'll sign someone else's NDA, but we're not going to make them sign ours. We're going to give them great information. Mm. We're going to encourage everyone to use it. Uh, and our hope is that some people will hire us. And by and then if I I would if I couldn't get meetings with employers, I would take as many meetings as I could with vendors. So try to meet anybody who will meet with you, meet with them, Love learn that. from them, find a way, uh, find a way to learn from that person. And then also find a way to add value to them. And then if everyone with whom you interact is sort of filing you under helpful and you're adding value to everyone you can, it starts to create a ripple effect where people feel bad that they're not able to help you. And so they find a way to do it um, in another way. Adam Grant talks about this in the book, Give and Take. It's sort of a generalized reciprocity factor. Yeah. Where most people like to have balance in the universe. They like fairness. Mm -hmm. And so if someone helps you, what do you want to do? Oh, I, I want to do something nice for that person. And if I don't really have a way of helping them, so like I would help somebody and they'd be like, oh, I wish I could hire that person. Mm. And, but, the, but if they couldn't, if they couldn't yeah. hire me as their consultant, they'd still feel bad about it and they'd want to do they'd want to do right by me. Mm. And so they would gossip nice about me. And when you have enough people in the world who are saying nice things about you because you've been genuinely helpful to them, um, that's where the, it starts to come back and, and you have this weird sort of karmic effect. Man, I, that's also not too dissimilar to the theme of The Go-Giver I read recently as well, which is, I don't know if you've read that book, Go-Giver. Um, uh -uh. It touches on reciprocity. It touches on, you know, giving first, which I think is really what you're kind of describing here. Free flow of information, but be the one to take the first step and sort of give freely in the market without expectation of return. Right. Um, I think that's kind of subconsciously you're describing a lot of my motivation <laughs> uh, with the podcast and what I do with Plansight is, well. So last question for you, Lee, and this has been a pleasure, man. I really yeah. genuinely appreciate you, you sharing your expertise. You have, I think, a unique position with what you see, especially with these jumbo employers. I mean, how many lives are you guys touching on average within the HTA? We have about 5 million lives, just under 5 okay. million lives. So that's a very big cross-section of, of the United States, at least in the healthcare ecosystem when we're talking benefits crystal ball on the future of healthcare, right? So do you think you have a little bit of an advantage working with these big employers to kind of have an idea of what's coming next? And if so, what do you think is coming next? I don't know if we have a major advantage to see or predict what's coming next because that is so hard to do. Okay. But there is a future I'm excited about and a future I'm scared of. And I'm, and I think we're in as good a position as any to bring about the good one. Okay. And what are those? Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say let's go scary first, and then we'll end on hopeful if you don't. Yeah. Mind. yeah. So the scary, I call the scary a, a a hotel California scenario, which is the the lines of the song you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Yeah. Yeah. And. That scenario is one where all healthcare is controlled by some major corporations. Okay. And they have weaponized access to the point where they control your benefits, they control the patients, they control how often you get seen, they control the referrals. Mm. And so your your employees have to use a use the doctor sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the second you start sort of having a relationship with the doctor, 
every every point of access is controlled by a company whose whose objective is shareholder value by daisy chaining into higher and higher priced services. Yeah. 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 With no cap on what they cost and no way for anyone to fight back against it. Yeah. That's the dystopian future that scares me. Well, and so I'll draw on something that's analogous to that and not to pick on Apple, yeah. but I'm in the Apple ecosystem. I've got a MacBook, I've got an iPhone, use obviously their suite of products. There's such a strong vertical integration within not only the hardware and the software for me to leave would be a painful process. And it's gen it's designed as such, right? And not saying I'm involuntarily in the ecosystem. I clearly am voluntarily here, but could I leave is, is a question, you know, I don't know if I could at yeah. this point. Right. So just to draw an analogy to that, which I don't think you're too far off. And there's some players in that are entering into the healthcare space, if you will, that have me pause for concern. So leave me with some hope though. Lee. Okay. Let's so go hopeful. What's the, what's the positive or what's the, what's the, I, I think a better future. I think a better future is one where, Every every person in the country has access to a has access to a physician. Hopefully that they can meet with in person, although mm. that may not be totally practicable. But um, where there is a a physician in your city or town that uh, with whom you have a relationship of trust. Trust is critical. We didn't get into a lot of it today, but placebo effect is incredibly powerful and it's a th about a third of all healing is our belief mm. and if you know the the term placebo is sort of cynical but if we say that trust and belief is about a third of our healing that's not a bad approximation okay and in order to have deep belief and trust you need a relationship because you can't just you can't just sort of trust technology or things or even information anymore. There's so much that's confusing or yeah. difficult. You need to be able to confide and trust another person. I believe that. I love that. And um, you don't have to have that, but it's like a third of your healing. Yeah. And so we want every person to be able to have a relationship of trust with a physician um, who they can access whenever they need to mm -hmm. that reduces the, the fear and, and, you know, and, and psychological pain of, of the unknown yeah. by not knowing what to do if something happens. And then we can reach out and, and interact with that person and that that physician is practicing at the top of his or her license and making very judicious and sparse referrals into specialist care when necessary. Okay. Yep. And that those referrals are data-driven to high-quality and, and fairly-priced providers. And that if that we convert, there's a saying, there's dumb money and smart money, where dumb money has no accountability and no transparency and doesn't make good decisions. And smart money evaluates things and makes logical, value-driven decisions. That today, almost all the money in healthcare is dumb money. It just, okay. it flows willy-nilly. It maybe follows a billboard here or there. There's a third of it is like unnecessary or redundant. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's very, it's not driven by any value calculation. And if we can convert all the money that we have, or, or a huge percentage, or a, even a modest percentage of the money that we have today in healthcare, can convert over to smart money that follows high value and high quality care. It will create a ripple effect that incentivizes the entire system to start to make changes in order to not go bankrupt yeah. as the movement grows. And that's that's the future that I think we can get to as employers. 
and that would be better than either a single-payer future or certainly a dystopian oligarchy future. Okay. Well, I love it. Let's leave it there. I definitely want to leave it with some hope, right? And I'm, I'm always a hope springs eternal with me, man. And I certainly Absolutely. hope you're right. And I think having the best minds that we can possibly attract to this industry to help solve this problem collectively is, is what I hope to, you know, put my small stamp on the industry as well with a podcast like this. So Lee, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Genuinely was a pleasure. I uh, appreciate you, sir. And talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Take care. Captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated. Check them out at truecaptive.com.